Welcome to the um, 
you still think through what you've uh, had to work through to be able to uh, walk up against the wind, uh, maybe to be able to have a conversation. Uh, for those of you who are in YouTube, but if you want to just onto the bench, uh, just be sure the mantle is right here for the card, so we don't start talking too fast and don't bog you down with YouTube questions. That would be very helpful. Uh, if this is your first time at Public Meeting or you've uh, been coming for the last couple of weeks, uh, then uh, I'm glad that you've stuck with us. This is the uh, third week of our series on 1 Thessalonians. This week we're looking at the passage that we've read for us. And so can I encourage you to try and have a copy of that passage open in front of you so you can uh, see what I've been talking, what I'm uh, going to be talking about. Uh, just before we uh, get into uh, the passage themselves, uh, there's been a couple of questions that have come through both on the Connect cards and on the email. So if you've got any questions about anything that I'm saying each week, please feel free to put them on those Connect cards. Uh, one of the key questions from last week is uh, something along this line. Uh, someone wrote in saying, Paul's apostleship, which we looked at last week, has been divinely inspired. Does that mean that we have apostles today? That's the original comment. Uh, here's my brief answer. My brief answer is no. So let's... Oh, you want a bit more? Uh, to be fair, um, I think the reason why I don't think we have apostles today as we're describing the epistles is for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that as far as I can tell from reading through the New Testament, the apostles are a particular group of people, firstly, who saw the risen Lord Jesus. For many of them, they had spent time with him and witnessed his ministry and been involved in his ministry. Uh, they had also received, secondly, a personal commission from the risen Lord Jesus. So in this case, the 11, including John and Matthew himself, that we didn't see in Jesus' after his resurrection. Uh, but in this case, the 11 in Acts chapter 1, when they received the personal commission of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, are then deemed by the early church, and particularly Luke, when he writes the history of the book of the early church in the book of Acts, uh, names them as apostles. So there's something going on that says actually this particular group of people who saw, who spent time with Jesus while he was alive, who saw him after his resurrection, who had received a personal commission from him, and who were also approved by the elders of the early church in Acts 20, uh, were actually those who were then called apostles. What you find in the early church teaching is that the label of apostle is not used after that first generation of people. They may be called church fathers or church elders, but the label apostle is not being given. So I take it for those reasons, both primarily the biblical resources from the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts and some of the other pastoral epistles, but also then the writings of some of the early church fathers that we don't have apostles today as the Bible would understand. Uh, if you want to disagree with me, please feel free to write a comment after the session. Uh, one of the things that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks is what's going on in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I suggested to you two weeks ago in the first of our series that Paul's underlying theological framework runs through this letter to the 1 Thessalonians and he has three particularly big ideas. The first is, the first is the return of Jesus. Paul is keen to have his hearers understand that Jesus is coming back again. And in various places Paul will emphasise how imminent the return of Jesus will be. Paul envisages, I think, that it could be within his lifetime. That's how soon Paul thought the Lord Jesus would return. Theological idea is that God saves his people, and we see this as we read through the Old Testament. We know that that's the pattern of God, that he restores and redeems his people, and we see this again in the writings of the New Testament. And the third big theological idea is that there will be a time of God's wrath or a time of God's judgment. Now, these three theological ideas, I think, form essentially the core of what's going on in Paul's background thinking as he writes this letter to the early church in Thessalonica. Now, there 
thing that we saw uh, a few weeks ago is I asked this question, what is it you are passionate about? And the second question, have you been converted? So that's particularly you read through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, here's the answer. That's a letter actually addressed to the church. Okay, last week, if you were here last week, one of the things that we looked at was how is it that Paul, how does Paul behave when he is with the Thessalonians? And so in his letter from chapter 2, verses 1 to about verse 15, uh, we saw that Paul was very keen to write to this early church. He expresses and reminds his hearers, which primarily were those who were with him in Thessalonica, how he was rejoicing. We saw a little bit of the emotion in Paul, his feelings that he had towards them. We were reminded of the example that he set for them. Uh, The underlying argument here, I think, in chapter 2 is that Paul is someone in chapter 2, verse 4, who has been approved and entrusted with the gospel. And this is primarily Paul's motive for why he then preaches and why when he goes to the town of Thessalonica and preaches, he doesn't preach trying to use words that his hearers will be flattered by, nor does he turn up with a motive which is one of making money out of his preaching, which was actually the pattern of some other early orators in the day who would travel around from town to town and city to city trying to impress people with their great words of wisdom in the hope that people would give them money. No, Paul here says that his motive is pure, and his motive comes out from the fact that he has been approved and entrusted with the gospel from God. So what are we looking at this week? Well, in chapter 2, verses 17, down to chapter 3, verses 13, the big idea is, how is Paul when he is apart from the Thessalonians? Now, you notice here that I've had to make a couple of decisions about the way in which we structured the content that we're doing each of the talks. And I think as I read through the letter, the more natural break is not actually where the translators have put a break in chapter 1, verse 23. I think the more natural break in the line of Paul's arguments is actually after chapter 2, verses 7. Up until that point, most of chapter 2, I think he's talking about how Paul uh, was with, how Paul is describing how he was with the Thessalonians. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he starts a different line of argument. And he starts reflecting on his time now that he is apart from them. And that continues right through until the end of chapter 3. The next natural break is in chapter 4, as we skipping ahead, where he starts his, uh, his uh, section in chapter 4, verse 1, with this little phrase, finally, brothers. Clearly, that's what he's teaching. So that's why I've actually uh, departed slightly from the natural break that the translators have given to this text. Keep in mind that the chapter headings, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers aren't in the original. And so actually the translators have tried to help us with some structure to the letter. And so it's actually not um, unusual for us to follow slightly different structures. So that's the uh, reason why I've done that. So today we're looking at these four main points. So if you're going to take notes, uh, you might like to write these four headings down. And the four things that we're looking at is what is it that Paul boasts in? What then is Paul fearful of or what is Paul's concern? Thirdly, what is Timothy's gospel? And fourthly, how does Paul then respond by praying for the Thessalonians? We'll work our way through the text and look at those four big ideas and then we'll have some reflections and some application at the end. One of the things that we see most clearly here in chapter 2, verses 17 to the end of the chapter is that despite the fact that Paul is no longer physically present with the Thessalonians, he is still passionate to know how they are going. Now, this is the early church that he founded by being there for three weeks. And we see here that Paul gives some expression to his desire to once again see his family at the place. He's genuinely keen to see them. But clearly we see here, this is not been possible, and we see this in verse 18, where Paul writes, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. What could that mean under this phrase, that Satan hindered Paul, and presumably his apostolic ministry, from returning to the Thessalonians? 
make some comment on what we think this verse could mean. What do we think the verse actually tells us? Well, I think it tells us a couple of things. First of all, it's very short and it's of a length. The first thing is that Paul actually recognises the existence of three powers. Paul recognises the existence of three powers. Secondly, we see that Paul sees Satan not only existing, but also having some capacity to work in the world. It's clear, like, the thing that has prevented Paul from getting back to the Thessalonians, at least in his mind in this verse, is that Satan has somehow got him. So, firstly, Paul recognises the existence of spiritual powers. Secondly, he sees that Satan not only exists, but has some capacity to work in the world. And thirdly, we see Paul clearly gives Satan some agency, some particular capacity of working in the world, or some agency, as the reason why he, Paul, has been prevented from getting back to so what could this mean? If you read the verse and if you try and picture what it would mean, you sort of conjure up the image of the dome, that this sort of impenetrable barrier that Paul is unable to get through that's been put there by Satan. Paul wakes up one morning and just says, gee, I'll walk back down the road to Jerusalem. And he just steps up against this big dome and it doesn't matter whether or not he walks to this side or this side. Is that, is that what you think it means? Is that the way in which you think Satan would prevent Paul from getting back to Thessalonians? And at this point, here's my word of warning word of warning is don't go beyond what the text tells us. Actually, we're not told, are we? I think all we're told is this, because I've already been able to articulate it. And beyond that, we're really speculating. Okay? Speculating. Okay? I'm giving you the warning. I'm doing some speculating. Here's what I think it means. I think what it means is I think what this actually means is that Paul has been prevented from returning to Thessalonica by those who are trying to inflict some form of physical suffering, physical pain, upon him. Now we see this in the book of Acts chapter 16. And I think for me, as I think this through, I think, well, actually, what's going on when people are trying to imprison Paul or prevent him from doing the ministry he's called? Well, in many respects, if Paul is doing what God is passionate about, then those who are doing against Paul are clearly doing the things that we know elsewhere that the, the, uh, the devil works in the world to draw people away from God for the good purposes of God. And so to some extent, I think we're going to say that the way in which Satan is working the lives of these people who are physically imprisoning or uh, bringing suffering upon Paul have in some way been affected by the temptation of the devil. So for me, I take it that's the means by which Paul has been prevented from returning to Thessalonica. Now, I'm quite open to any other speculation you may have as to how you think Satan has prevented Paul from doing that. If you've got the comment card, what about this and what about that, I'll quite gad, gladly try and engage with it. But we should not, though, lose sight of the source of this particular verse. The source of the verse is not how is it that Satan has injured Paul. The source of the verse, I think, is Paul's great longing to get back to the Thessalonians. so keen to get back and see the Thessalonians. Perhaps Paul has left something behind. You know, he's left his cloak, he's left his towel, his toiletry bag, as he sort of moves on from uh, Thessalonica then to go to Athens and then go to Corinth. And so he's, I'm going to get back and get all my stuff. And as he's traipsed around the Mediterranean, he's sort of left his trail of all of his belongings behind. Well, actually, we see, you know, you laugh, uh, we do see it elsewhere because he does write somewhere else, and I've forgotten the verse now, he sends one of his uh, other apostles to go and get some cloak and some of his 
scrolls that he's left behind. So maybe he's addressed it before he left behind the tablet. Why is it that Paul is saying to Peter? Well, I think it's that verse 19 gives us the answer. It's actually got nothing to do with Paul leaving stuff behind. I think the reason is because Paul rightly understands the season in which he is living. And the season or the age in which Paul is living is the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. You see this in verse 19. Paul says, For when our hope and our joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus is coming back even very soon. And I think that's the reason why he wants to get back and see those at the church at Thessalonica. Now this little phrase, which was read for us in the ESV, for what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming, if you're using the NIV, it's translated as intercession of the Lord Jesus. Okay? What does this verse mean? Well, it could mean a couple of different things. Trajectory of the verse is probably at his coming time, when all are gathered in the presence of the Lord Jesus. What is it that Paul will then hope in, be joyful for, and boast about? I think that's probably what it could mean. But if you've got an ESV translation or we're following along on the screen, one of the other possibilities is what is it that Paul is hoping in now, before the return of the Lord Jesus, from a temporal point of view? I think it could actually be translated either way, and so the translators of the NIV have gone for one option, the translators of the ESV have gone for another option. Uh, both, I think, when we look at the original, are probably valid, but both mean slightly different things. However, the thing to not get concerned about is actually whether or not it's in the here and now, or whether or not it's actually in the presence of the Lord Jesus, because again, we miss the weight of the verse. The weight of the verse is that Paul is actually placing his hope, his joy, and his boasting in something. And what is that something? Well, I think what we see here is, in the light of the return of Jesus, Paul glories in the fact of joy in the Thessalonians. And it's no coincidence that he comes and says, Look, is it not you? This is the thing that Paul is joyful for, joyful about, the thing that he finds and places his hope in, and the thing that he boasts in. See, Paul is passionate about the things that God is passionate about. And God is passionate about the things that he is passionate about in the light of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. And because Paul is passionate about what God is passionate about, Paul also is passionate about these people. Because God has placed in these people, Paul now places his hope, his joy, and his boasting in this group of people. See, what is it that we place our hope or our joy or our future boasting in? And I think for many of us, the answer is, first and foremost, is that actually temporal? Sure, we do place some joy in certain people. Occasionally, we might place some hope in some of these people. And occasionally, we might boast in someone in the group of our sibling who's done well at something. Or someone in our family who's done far better at something than us. But I think generally, if we were asked, what is it that you place your joy in, your hope in, and what do you boast in? I think we would say it's things. I think there's a number of different things that we do here. I think the first thing is sometimes we place our joy and our hope in material stuff. And we're always after the next job. We're always after the thing to try and make life easier. The next toy. The thing that other people have got that we don't yet have. That's the thing that we really sort of revel in. And I think if for any of us who've ever got a new phone 
before it's bottled because it does more with the produce than it should. Friends, it's still a part of you. Okay? I think, though, the other thing we do is we place our hope or our joy or we boast in achievements in life. We talk about the things that we've done, all those things that we've achieved. For some of you in your final year of uni and you're starting to put together your CV, you're furiously trying to make some of the really mundane things that you did sound really, really exciting. That's called boasting. If you worked at McDonald's, just say, work at McDonald's. Don't try and tell us that you were the head chef at a restaurant. Okay? It's a little bit of a boasting. You see, we place our hope or our joy or our boasting in achievements. But at other times, I think we place our hope and our joy and our boasting in certain life milestones, don't we? I've finished uni. Now, sure, that's an achievement, but it's also seen as a bit of a life milestone. I've managed to get married. I've, act- I've got kids, and I'm doing an okay job of raising them. I've bought a house. It sort of covers all three things. It's one of those material possessions. If, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an achievement, and it's also a bit of a life milestone. My question is, are these things, are these things concerned for you? Because I agree that Jesus is concerned for you about them, and he's interested in making sure that you are thought well about them. But the question is, are these the things that God is after for us? I suspect to Paul, the certainty of salvation is grounded in relationship. It's not grounded in the things particularly of this world. And I think Paul gets a very practical view of where some of our boasting comes from a lot of the time. And this is the thing in which Paul derives his greatest joy. And it's an inexpressible joy. It is boasting. Because Paul knows that for a lot of the reformed people, these people have turned aside from idols, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and now follow the living and true God. And his certainty then flows into great I think then we can appreciate what is Paul's feeling by not actually being able to have faith. It's a little bit like this. This is a bit of a trite example, but it might make sense to some of us. Um, you know that feeling, I hope some of you have had it, some of you are longing for it, when you actually ask someone to do something and they actually end up doing it. You know that feeling? It's not that awkward feeling where you ask someone out and they sort of recoil a little bit and go, oh, I thought we were just friends. Mm, no, not that feeling. But really, oh my goodness me, I want the earth to swallow me feeling. You know, that feeling when you actually ask someone out and they say yes. And there's that sort of dysphoria of whatever it is, hormones, emotions, love, whatever it's going to be. You know what I mean? And then there's that sense that after you part ways, after you've had that sort of coffee or romantic walk or yeah, whatever it was, yeah, I'm not really a romantic sort of guy. I apologize for that. I apologize mainly to my wife for that. But after that moment, you actually have to sort of convey to someone. For those of you listening at home, that was not me saying I'm separating from my wife. You you have that sort of moment of initially agreeing, yes, we'll go out, and then you sort of separate. And then as you walk away from each other, you wonder how long it can be before you have to communicate with them. Can I send them a text immediately? Just with lots of smiley faces. Or maybe if you're a bloke, just one exclamation mark. How long do you leave it? Like 15 seconds? 30 seconds? 
I don't text them from the rooftop, maybe they think I wasn't serious. So I just call them. Maybe I should just turn around and run back to them. How long, how long do you go without this contact, this once again face-to-face contact? And I think sometimes we know that. We've either experienced it or we sort of know what that feeling is like. Well, in some senses, it's a little bit like that for Paul. Because these people were people whom he had poured his life into. He poured his emotions into these people. And the great joy for Paul was that as he proclaimed the gospel to them, they'd become Christians. He'd lived with them and spent life and shared life and done life together with them. And now he could no longer physically see them. And I think there's genuinely concern for them. And I think we see that as we read the text. And so Paul's concern for them is is that he can bear the separation no longer. And so what happens? Well, Paul here in chapter 3, verse 1, sends Timothy back to make sure that the people are going okay. Now, this is actually a fairly big move for Paul. Timothy is uh, Paul's offsider, his co-worker. And to have Paul farewell Timothy so that as Paul moves on in his journey, there's this uncertainty because travel in those days was not a safe thing. You don't get on the aeroplane and you've gone through all this screening and trust there's no terrorists on the aeroplane and all these sorts of things. No, actually, particularly if Timothy's going by himself, that was a very dangerous thing to do, to walk the roads by yourself. But Paul expresses none of his anxiety here for Timothy because the overwhelming thing that Paul has in his mind is the Thessalonians. How are they going to handle this? And so he sends Timothy back again. I think Paul's greatest concern here is that suffering... Will, have, will not have been the thing that has caused the Thessalonians to have weakened in their faith. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, down to the next little section, what we see here is, down to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, is Paul's great concern for the Thessalonians and his hope that they will not have weakened because of suffering. See, Paul recognises that suffering is a reality in the present age. Uh, we see earlier that Paul has suffered. Uh, we saw it in chapter 1, verse 6 that the Thessalonians had suffered as they received the word. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 1, that Paul had suffered at Philippi. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 14, that the Thessalonians had already suffered. So in the space of two chapters, there's all this stuff about suffering. And we see also that Paul recognised in chapter 3, verse 3, that they were destined to this or were appointed to this. And I take it that Paul's referring to suffering. Now, I think what that's talking about is back in Acts chapter 17, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul's conversion, we read this in Acts chapter 17 verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man Saul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their king and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Right from Paul's conversion is the expectation that he's going to suffer. And I think suffer quite a lot for the sake of the name of Jesus. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, We were destined to suffer. See, for Paul, suffering is a present age reality before the return of the Lord Jesus. And Paul's great concern here is that as the Thessalonians have suffered in his physical absence, his hope is they will not have weakened in their faith, that they will not somehow turn back to idols, hoping that that will have given them greater security. So Paul shows great concern for them and sends Timothy back. See, Paul knows also the tempter in verse 5, yet another mention in the space of just a few verses, might not have caused the Thessalonians to drift away from their faith. Chapter 3, verse 5, I think we learn about your faithful Peter saying, now, the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I'll tell you 
take it the labor that Paul's referring to there is the proclaiming of the gospel to them and the fact that Paul lives with them and sets an example to them of, of how different they are to believers. But in this case, notice that the tempter also plays a part. And I suspect this is connected back to the earlier reference about how the tempter is preventing um, Paul from returning to Thessalonica. Because I take that that the word of the tempter in the eyes, in the mind of the Christian is, life is pretty tough at the moment, isn't it? You're suffering a lot. You make life easier before you become a Christian. People are nicer to you. Paul was very, very keen to make sure that they'd not been listening to the words of the tempter, but rather listening to the words of the true and the living God. So here we see Timothy's gospel in chapter 3, verse 6. But now, Timothy has come to us because you and have brought us the gospel of your faith. Now, some of the translations have some good news, but it's actually the word for gospel. Paul comes gospeling. Sorry, Timothy comes gospeling to Paul. See, the word gospel just means a great proclamation not particularly a Christian word. This is why the Old Testament writers, when they have this great proclamation about the business of Jesus, ascribe the word gospel to it. And if you read particularly through the book of Acts, it's the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ or the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Timothy here comes and presents a gospel to Paul. And the great news that Timothy brings here is that not only does Timothy speak about the faith and the love that the Thessalonians demonstrated, but that they miss Paul just as much as he missed them. And at that point, you can just see the great relief coming out of Paul's letter. You can see the overwhelming love that he has for them because it's being reciprocated by the fact that the Thessalonians are missing them. And it is this news that brings Paul, in the midst of his distress and affliction that he's now in Corinth, great joy. Paul goes as far as saying down in verse 8, for now we live if you are circumcised to the Lord. The thing that enlivens Paul, the thing that drives Paul, is this great news that these early Christians are still standing fast in the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that what does Paul do? Does he congratulate himself? No. What does he do here in verses 9 and 10? He prays, and his prayer is one of great thanksgiving to God. It's a prayer of praise to God. And he says there that he's been praying in verse 10, most earnestly day and night. Such is the desire for Paul for this group of people. Now also, notice what Paul prays. He prays there at the end of verse 10 that they may supply what is lacking in their faith. I think we've got a minute just to try and unpack what this means in just a little bit. This little phrase, what is lacking in your faith, really only appears three other places, as far as I can work out in Paul's writings in the New Testament. For those of you taking notes, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, where Paul says, Do not be lacking in any spiritual. Your translation probably has spiritual gift. The word gift is not there in the original. It just makes it a little bit harder to work out what's going on. It just says that you might not be lacking in any spiritual. And I take it what Paul is meaning there is that he wants them to be full of the Holy Spirit. So that's probably what it means, not lacking in any form of spiritual. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 30, uh, there's this little phrase that Epaphroditus would complete the service of the Philippians that was lacking with regard to their service of Paul. So the Philippians have clearly sort of lacked something in their service of Paul and it's got something to do with Epaphroditus. I actually think what's going on there is the Philippians have probably committed something to Paul 
financial aid or some sort of reward that they've not yet delivered. So it's lacking. It hasn't been completed yet. So Epaphroditus is bringing that to Paul. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says that he fills up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Uh, it's the hardest of all three. And I think probably what's going on there is that Paul is recognising that he is now physically suffering on behalf of Christ. Because the physical body of Christ can no longer suffer. Because Christ suffered once and for all on the tree and is now in his ascended body seated at the right hand of God. But Paul recognises that the body of Christ still physically suffers. And Paul takes up that suffering as, the rep- as one of the representatives of that body as the apostle to the Gentiles. And I take it also the body of Christ still physically suffers because all believers are the body of Christ. And at times, we and others around the world still suffer physical pain and persecution for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. So how does that help us work out what's going on among Thessalonians 3 and Paul says, what is lacking in your faith? Actually, I don't think it does. Because all of those three examples are actually quite different. So we've got to go back into the context to work out what we think Paul is saying. And I think what he's talking about here is when Paul says what is lacking in your faith, I think, I'll be corrected, that it's actually talking about the restoration of physical presence. Because this is the thing that's lacking from the Thessalonians. It's not as if they don't get heard some of the gospel and Paul needs to get back and tell them the rest of the gospel. It's not that the Thessalonians are demonstrating a life which is less than the Christian life. Because the report from Timothy is, no, actually, they're just... They're living it. They're doing it. It's fantastic. So what's lacking? I take it when you read the context and go back and look with me, Paul prays, as we pray most earnestly day and night, that we may see you face to face. I think that is the only thing that could actually strengthen the Thessalonians' faith. Once again, seeing Paul face to face with them. I take it that's why Paul prays that. So it may, if he's able to have the opportunity, to speak what's lacking in them. Is that a question today? So Paul then concludes this section in verse 11 and 12 and 13 with a a short sort of doxological moment, a little hymn of praise to God. Uh, We see other illustrations of it in Romans 11 and Ephesians 3. And here Paul prays thanksgiving God, knowing that this living God will hear and respond. And one of Paul's prayers is that he would genuinely be able to get back and see the Thessalonians face to face, which is fantastic. But it's also that he prays that their love would abound more and more, both for the other believers also to all of those round about them. And notice the context in which it comes, verse 13, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Once again, we see that Paul's prayer is related to the return of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. And if you're wondering what that little phrase means, next week, look at chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5. So how then do we respond? What are some of the things we should draw from the last four minutes? Firstly, I think the first thing I want to try and urge you to see is the character and nature of the Apostle Paul. At times you might meet people who really don't like Paul, to which I want you to try and gently encourage them to read parts of his writings, particularly this one. But I think we see the genuine, true care that Paul has for people. And in this case, it's the early converts. And I think you see very clearly as you read and study this passage the great emotion that Paul has towards them. We're reminded of his example, both when he was with the Thessalonians and now that he's apart from the Thessalonians. The example of how he lives and encourages others to live. And because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and I 
are not Jewish by descent, but Paul is our apostle, and we do well to listen and obey his word, for he speaks the word of God to us. Secondly, I think in the light of this particular reference, we need to have some response to physical suffering in the world now. And in this case, the passage is clearly directed towards suffering as a result of persecution because of those who declare the name of the Lord Jesus or hold to the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul here is not talking about suffering when you're feeling really unwell. Sometimes when you've been prayed, someone comes to you and says, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm really suffering. I've got a really bad head cold. Well, you may have a really bad head cold and that's a terrible thing. But friends, this is not the way in which the Bible uses the word suffering. Generally, do the study yourself. Work through the passages that talk about suffering. The biblical trajectory of suffering is as a result of persecution, physical pain, come about because of naming the name of the Lord Jesus, owning the name of the Lord Jesus, saying that you're a Christian or declaring it, evangelism or something like that. And here I think we do well to remember that in this country we are very fortunate that suffering for being a Christian and for talking about Jesus in the public arena is actually something we generally do not have to face. But we do well to remember that we've got hundreds of millions of friends and brothers and sisters all around the world who are Christians who suffer day in and day out because they say, I'm a Christian. And they wish to speak it and talk about it and share it. To proceed in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think at the moment, if Paul's response is right, then our response, the most appropriate primary response, is we pray. And friends, if you do not know what to pray for people around the world who are Christians who are suffering, then I apologise that I've not taught this passage well enough. Because I think we've learned today from this passage how we could and should pray for those people. And I encourage you to go back and read the text and use perhaps a website like the Voice of the Martyrs where you can be better informed about some of the suffering and persecution of Christians around the world. Thirdly and lastly, there may still be some here today who are not yet Christians. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking fairly significantly about what it means to turn to idols and to follow the Lord Jesus. If this is you, then can I encourage you to not delay in seriously considering the claim to become a Christian. But keep in mind that it comes at great cost Christian is not an easy thing. It will actually involve you giving up something. Because if you're living following idols, God is saying to you, you are living the wrong way, stop living that way and live differently. That means you will think differently, you will feel differently and you will act differently. If you're not prepared to do these things for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus, recognising that with God's help it is impossible I've taught some of that it's not just me or just Mr. Rod Arkwood down there I'm asking you to do. I'm more than happy to speak to you more about that. Why don't I pray for us? Pray for me. Father God, in your kindness, we give you thanks for this uh, letter that Paul has written. We thank you, Father, that in your kindness you have shown us the heart of our apostle. Father, we thank you for the love and the care and the concern that Paul has shown for these new believers, despite his absence from them. Father, we pray, please, that in your kindness you would enable us to follow Paul in the instance that we too would show genuine care and concern for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering, for our brothers and sisters who we are not physically present with. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name.